0: Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And as you turn there, just want to encourage you in some other things. We've, we've already talked about some this morning. Hopefully you've had a chance to spend time at the, the tables here in the, the foyer and be able to talk with some people about different ministry opportunities. Just a, a neat time to think about some of the things that are going on in the life of our church and you haven't already downloaded the Planning Center app. That's a great place to go to, to to sign up for some of those things or even click on and see more information about those things. And one of the things you can click on there if you go to, to sign ups is the Christian Doctrines class, the systematic theology class we take in the fall. Some of you have asked, you know, do I need to go to every class? Do I, what if I don't want to take this class for, for credit? Uh, just encourage you to feel free to come to whatever classes you want to, but if you sign up for that, uh, later on the week, I'll be sending out some more information about uh, the schedule and different things we're going to be covering on different, uh, different weeks, and so that's something we're going to be doing in the fall, uh, the Christian Doctrines class, being signed up that, for that through the Planning Center app as well. We're here in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, and uh, David is going to bring the ark to Jerusalem. The ark has uh, been uh, staying near uh, Kirith-Jerim since 1 Samuel chapter 7, and it's going to be uh, brought to Jerusalem today. Uh, David captured uh, the city of Jerusalem in chapter 5, and now he brings the ark to Jerusalem in chapter 6. And if you're able to, uh, please stand with me in honor of God as we read this word together. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Beled Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of The Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will Make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word. And Father, we would ask as we look at this this chapter and your word that we would understand you better that we would fear you, and that our worship would would grow, that it would become more like what you desire it to be as we see you in these, these words. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever had a conversation with a person and you kind of got the sense that it, it didn't really matter if you were there or not? You know, a person is talking about something, maybe it's a subject that they're kind of excited about, and they, they begin to talk, and and uh, they just kind of go on and on and and you recognize that they don't really they're not really aware that you're there or not there maybe they're they're talking about finance and you're just really not all that into into finances and they're going on and on and on you don't really understand what they're saying but it, it doesn't really matter because they're they're not looking for much of a reaction from you or maybe it's about politics or maybe uh some other issue uh cars or something, and you, and you really don't care, but you could just as well be a brick wall because they're so excited, they're talking enough for the both of you. Uh, I sometimes do that. I was in a conversation last weekend with my uh, sister and brother-in-law and, and Whitney, and someone someone uh, mentioned some theological topic, and, and suddenly half an hour had gone by, and I realized, I think I've been the only one talking uh, for quite some time now. Uh, that's not a good thing, right? Right? And it's especially not a good thing uh, if we are unaware of the presence of God in our worship of Him. Uh, We can't be unaware when we're worshiping that we are in the presence of the the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that it's, it's, it's He that we're worshiping. We're not just kind of saying things in the air, but there's God, who, who's here, who's, who's the object of our worship. We need to be thinking about Him. A.W. A. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, famously wrote this as he began that work. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I, I might nuance some of that wording a little bit, but, but his, his point is a very good one. As we, as we engage in worship, It's essential that the things that we're thinking about as we think about God are are right, are true, are are biblical. We're aware of God's presence in our worship. We don't just mean that we have this emotional response. Sometimes when someone says, well, man, the presence of God was really there this morning, what they mean is they had some sort of emotional response. That's, That's not the essence of what it means to be aware of the presence of God. Uh, Whitney and I are watching the, uh, the Fellowship of the Rings, that the first movie, The Lord of the, the Rings uh, trilogy, and, and we're watching the extended version uh, slowly. You know, I know you should watch it all at once, but it's taken us a couple days, and we're like two-thirds of the way through it now. But as, you, as, we, as we're watching it, there are times where there's, there's kind of an emotional response to what's happening on the screen. You see these, these themes of loyalty and sacrifice, and, and you respond emotionally to that, right? Uh, that's emotion, that's not worship, or it shouldn't be, right? But this morning, uh, singing And Can It Be, uh, one of my, my favorite hymns, that also evokes a response, of, uh, an emotional response on my part. But, but, but what's different about that emotional response, I'm, I'm contemplating who God is, and I'm thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God the Son, uh, fully God, fully man, who came and, and took my place, my penalty, and and now how can it be that that God should die for me? How can it be that I have the the ability to come into the presence of God? That's worship. There's emotion to it for sure, and that, that accompanies our worship, but that's not the essence of what it means to consider God's presence as we engage in worship. Back in 1 Samuel, if you'll remember, we, we talked about the Ark of God before, the Ark of the Covenant. We, we talked about 1 Samuel 4 through 6 or so, considered what worship looks like when the glory of God departs. We talked about how worship is, is not just zealous, that's, that's not true worship necessarily. We're touching on some similar problems this morning. David and the people of Israel are excited. They're super excited to worship. They're super excited to get the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, into Jerusalem. But that excitement lacks an awareness of God's presence, the one whom they're worshiping. And as they, feel, as they fail to recognize God's holiness and his presence, tragedy strikes Their lack of the awareness of God and his holiness and his presence costs a man his life. I hope this morning as we look at chapter 6 here, we grow in our ability to enjoy our worship as we contemplate God's presence. And here's kind of the main idea that I want us to think about as we go through this chapter together. You and I, we as a church, must be mindful of the presence of our holy and loving triune God as we worship. As we come together, the the ultimate aspect of our worship is is not just that we're with other people that we love. It's not just that we love the songs that that were sung this morning, and uh, it's not just anything other than ultimately that the presence of God, that we're mindful that God, a holy and loving triune God, is here among us as we worship. That must be foundational in our worship, having right thoughts about God and his presence among us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at, at four things about God's presence in our worship. And then the, the the fourth thing that we consider, we're going to look at five words that help us make sure that we're worshiping rightly. Okay? So let's let's dive in here. Number one, let's talk about the reality of God's presence in our worship. And look with me, uh, if you will, at the text here in verses 1 and 2, what happens? David gathers all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and he wants them to go with him from Bela Judah, where the ark is. It's another name for Kirith, jerim and to, to bring the ark into Jerusalem. If you remember from 1 Samuel chapter 7, the ark was left at the home of Abinadab, the house of Abinadab, and his son Eleazar was given charge of the ark. So this priestly family, they said, okay, look, we're, we're going to leave the ark here, and you guys are in charge of it, and that's where the ark has been during the entire rest of the reign of Saul and into this point of David's reign as well. And, and now, in chapter 5, what happened, and we didn't talk about this in, in great detail, but David captured the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, and David wants to move the, the political center of the kingdom into this city. This is going to be called the, the city of David. It's been called Mount Zion. It's been called uh, Salem. It's where Melchizedek is from. This is where David wants the, the center of the kingdom to be, the, the political center of Israel to be. But he doesn't want it just to be the, the political center. Remember, David is a, a picture of the, the new covenant king. He's a He's a picture of Christ. And like Christ, he wants to lead his his people in worship of the one true God. He he wants Israel to fulfill her purpose. Remember, she used to be a a nation of priests, and, and David wants to help his people fulfill that. And so he's going to make Jerusalem the, the, the political center of the kingdom, but he also wants to make it the religious center of the kingdom. You can look at 1 Chronicles chapters 13 through 16, 17, and you see the parallel passage of what's happening here in 1 Samuel 6. And in 1 Chronicles 16, as as David brings in the the ark to Jerusalem, so a, a parallel passage to what's happening here. He commands Asaph and his brothers to sing a song of thanksgiving, and listen to how the song begins. So this is what they're to sing as they bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. They say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. That's the goal of bringing the ark into Jerusalem, that, that this, this visible representation of the presence of God would, would be there with his people, and that all the nations, as they see God blessing Israel, would know who Yahweh is, that, that his, his praises would be sung by the people of Israel so that all the nations would know of his glory. That's David's goal. Good goal, right? Right? God-glorifying goal. And so he gathers these chosen men of Israel, and they're to take the ark from Bela Judah, here at Jerem, and bring it into Jerusalem. Now, look at the end of verse two. The end of verse two sets up what happens in the rest of the chapter, helps us understand what's taking place. They're, they're to bring up the ark of, of God, this is verse two, and he doesn't say that just, Just the ark of God. He says, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. And then, who is Yahweh? So this this ark is this visible manifestation of the presence of God. It's called by his name, Yahweh, the one true God. And this one true God is not just a, a territorial God. He's not just a God that kind of hovers around the ark. He's not just the, the God of Israel. He's a God, it, it tells us, who sits enthroned. There's this, this power that he has. He sits enthroned on the cherubim. And so these sometimes we think of cherubim as these cute little baby angels, right? That's not the picture that we have of them in Scripture. In fact, turn over to Ezekiel chapter 1. And, and, and the, the cherubim we see are these angels that represent the presence of God. When we see cherubim, we often see the the presence of God. And what he's telling us here is, okay, you have the the world. This is what the narrator of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 is telling us. You have the world, and and then you have the the cherubim who are above the the created realm, and then above them, you have God. So you come to Ezekiel chapter 1. These are angels who are in the presence of God. I was looking at my dad's uh, study Bible th- this week, and I was looking at Ezekiel chapter 1, and my dad had kind of written in the margins. He says, you know, or he didn't say, you know, he says, uh, "It all in Ezekiel 1, it all starts with God, but we can't approach God directly. And so in Ezekiel chapter 1, you have these four living creatures, and Ezekiel 10 tells us that these four living creatures are cherubim. And listen to what we, we read. Verse 13, he describes these, these living creatures. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And then above them, Ezekiel sees the glory of God visibly represented. Look at verse 26. And above them, so there's the cherubim, and then, the, the, then there's this space. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the, and listen to, listen to how many times it says, likeness and appearance. The, the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, and downward. "'From what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking.' What, what we're seeing there, I, I believe, is this, this foreshadowing of, of Jesus Christ as, as God reveals himself to Ezekiel. I think this is the, the, uh, the, the glory of God that he's seeing. The second person, of the Trinity, the, the response of Ezekiel here is exactly the same as we see John in, in Revelation 1. Whenever he sees Christ, all creatures must worship as they come into the presence of God. And so the writer has set the stage, right? The the narrator of 2 Samuel 6 has kind of set the stage as we go into the rest of the chapter. Here's here's God. This this ark of of God represents who God is, and, and God is the true God, and he's the God who's enthroned over all. David's ignorance of God's presence here is going to lead to tragic consequences. Does David's ignorance of what it means for God to be present change whether or not God is present? No. My uh, nieces and nephew, you know, they were here this last week, and, and uh, the, the two four year old nieces, they're, they're twins. And they're not identical twins, but for me, they they could almost just as well be identical twins. You know, when they're not looking at you, you have these two three foot or so things uh, facing away from you, and 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 you know, I, I can't tell the difference sometimes, right? My lack of awareness sometimes as to, to who was who didn't change the reality of of who of who they were, right? I see. Audrey, and I talk about, hey, Audrey, your, your favorite color is pink, right? She goes, no, 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 that's Ella. My favorite color is purple or whatever it is, right? My ignorance didn't, didn't change the reality of who they were. I, uh, Ella has a, a peanut allergy, and I, I can forget that or think it's Audrey that has the, the peanut allergy, but that, that doesn't really matter what I, what I think. If I feed Ella peanut butter, we're taking a trip to the yard. ER. And Uncle Daniel doesn't get to watch the kids anymore, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality. My ignorance of, of the character of God doesn't change the character of God. What I want us to think about applicationally here is let's humbly remember that there is a real and holy and awesome God with whom we interact as, as we worship. My opinions about his character, my opinions about how to worship him are completely irrelevant in terms of what's true about worshiping him. I'm entering into his presence. I'm entering into the presence of the one true God in a special way when I engage in corporate worship of him. That brings me to the the second thing that I want us to consider together this morning. That's the reality of God's presence. Number two, let's consider the terror of God's presence. What happens in the story? They need to get the ark from kiriath Jerem or Baal Judah, to Jerusalem. It's a journey of, a, of less than 20 miles. And and they think, well, uh, how should we get it there? Well, we don't want to just put on any old cart. This this is a, this is the ark. So let's let's put on a nice cart, new cart, right? So they begin to travel. doesn't seem like a big deal, right? Everybody's celebrating. They're they're rejoicing. They're excited. David's vision, a a good vision, of of seeing the ark there in Jerusalem and and the nations being able to praise God, it's it's beginning to get realized. And David is is super jazzed about everything that's happening. Everyone's excited. There's this, this celebration. And then disaster. What seemed like a a little thing leads to terrible tragedy. The the oxen stumble a little bit. Ezra reaches out a hand to steady the cart to, to prevent the ark from being desecrated, and he's struck down dead. And David's angry. You see, it turned out that the way the ark was transported was a big deal. God had been very specific about how the ark was to be transported. Uh, Exodus Chapter 25, he says, look, priests have poles, carry it with the poles, don't touch the ark. Nothing about carts, new or old. In Numbers, God says, when the, when the camp is to set out, Aaron and his son shall go in, take down the veil of the screen, cover the ark with that veil, then put it on a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth of, of blue and, and put in its poles. Very specific about how the presence, this visible representation of the presence of God was to be treated. Same chapter, Numbers 4 or later, verse 15. It says, God continues giving instructions, And when Aaron and his sons have finished the covering of the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. There was a warning, hey, the presence of God is an awesome thing, and you need to recognize that that sinful man cannot just enter into God's presence, and and here's how to protect yourself in the presence of God. There is a terror that also comes, a holy terror that comes as we consider God's presence. And David is angry. He's angry at what's taken place, his beautiful party this beautiful celebration that was supposed to be all about God, it turns out God was displeased. And instead of a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it turns into a funeral. But continue looking at the text. In his initial anger, he gives way rightly to this it pointed him to this exact question, which is a question that each of us need to consider as well. He says this, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? If it's true that God is this holy God who, who's, who's enthroned above the cherubim, if, if he's over all the world and he is a, a holy God, how can we be in relationship? How can I come into His presence? There's a common misconception, isn't there, that God is okay with however we want to come to Him and worship. And that God isn't that concerned with how we worship Him. As long as we worship Him, you can kind of decide how you're going to do it. Everybody can just kind of you can live in disobedience, use His name profanely or casually, read his commandments, his suggestions, decide what's reasonable and not reasonable for you in your stage of life, and then just he'll be happy. But that's not true. The reality is God must be consistent with his holiness. God cannot cease for a millisecond to be holy, to be completely and thoroughly devoted to his glory. God has been passionately devoted to His glory and the supremacy of His name since before the world began, and He will continue to be holy and completely and passionately devoted to the glory of His name into eternity past. There will not be a, a millisecond of existence of any of us or of God in which He is not holy and completely and thoroughly, passionately committed to the glory of his name. It must be so because God has a perfect perception of what is most valuable in this universe, the glory of his name himself. And so to come into his presence as a sinner is a terrifying thing. There's this great scene in The the Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis and from the Chronicles of Narnia where this, this girl, Jill, is thirsty. She wants to come to a stream to drink. And there's Aslan, the lion, who represents, allegorically, Christ in the series. And the lion tells her, look, if you're thirsty, you may drink. And she says, um, do you mind going away? And he just kind of growls. And she says, will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. There's a mercy and a graciousness to God, but we first, before we can understand his mercy and his graciousness, we, we first must understand the terror of being in God's presence. We cannot enter in God's presence as, as sinners apart from his grace. So the key question here, okay, if, if God is, if there's there's terror in God's presence, how, like like David asked, how can we be in his presence? Well, that brings us to the next thing I want us to consider, number three. The blessing of God's presence. Let's talk about the blessing of God's presence. And look what happens next. David leaves the ark of the Lord in the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite, and, and it's three months long. And during that time, the Lord blesses Obed Edom and, and all his household and was told, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed Edom and all that belonged to him because of the ark of God. And, and so David recognizes that, okay. You can exist in, in the presence of God. Well, well, how? We see that for those who walk in faith, there's blessing in God's presence. In fact, Psalm Psalm chapter twenty four is a, a psalm that, that we that we believe was written around this time. And, and listen to what David says. So remember, David's just encountered the terror of, of God's presence, and then he. Then he sees that God's blessing Obed-Edom, and he decides to bring the the ark back to to Jerusalem. But during this time, as he contemplates this tension between God blessing the house of Obed-Edom and striking Uzzah down dead, he writes Psalm 24. And listen to what he writes in Psalm 24. And and, and see if you can, can grasp the truth that David has grasped. The earth is the Lord. And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, how can we be in the presence of this holy God who who has founded the earth? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then how, how can you have those clean hands? Listen to what he says next. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from where? And, and righteousness from God. From the God of his salvation, his deliverance. This righteousness that we need comes from, from God's graciousness. Such, he writes, is the generation of those who seek him. So you turn to him in faith, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then he he says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So here's the the ark of of God coming into Jerusalem. Now Now how can it get here? Who who can stand before God? The one who receives the righteousness from God. How do you see that righteousness of God? Turning to him in faith. There's a blessing in God's presence, but it only comes through those who've received Him by faith. Hebrews chapter 10 helps us understand this in the the new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, we do not have the opportunity to come into God's presence in and of ourselves. We can't just show up in God's presence and say, here I am, ready to worship, Some of your commands I like, some of them I don't. Let's hang out. God is a holy God. He's committed to his glory. He's committed to his holiness. And those who worship him for their good and his glory, he's going to require the same of. You and I don't have the ability to have that level of righteousness. And so what do we do? We come to his, into his presence with confidence, but not because of our own righteousness, but because of Jesus Christ, who took on the, the terror of God for us, the, the terror of the wrath of the Father for us, bore the full penalty, and now gives us takes on, on himself our sin and gives us his righteousness. We receive that by faith, and now we experience the blessing of God's presence. The, the ark comes in, the, the presence of, of, of the triune God comes into our hearts. Brings us to the last last point, kind of five words I want us to think about here. That's, that's the worship in God's presence, the worship in God's presence. We see this in the rest of the chapter. Kind of there's so many words we could we could use to talk about what true biblical worship looks like, but there's kind of five that I, I see in this text that I want us to look at. Number one, the worship in God's presence. So true biblical worship in God's presence. Number one, it's biblical, right? It's biblical. It says he's he wants to bring the ark into Jerusalem. It says, when those who bore the ark of the of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now we see now he's more careful. In fact, if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 15, you see that David David says in verse 2, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. He's, he's recognized what he did wrong. And he says, the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord, to minister to him forever. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. And so the, the, the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves. This is verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 15. Uh, to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of hosts, the Levites, verse 15 of First of Chronicles 15, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles on, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Now their worship is biblical. Before it was kind of biblical adjacent. They had some, some biblical things they were trying to do, but it wasn't according to how God said he was to be worshiped we've talked about before something called the regulative principle or the regulative principle this idea that god's word regulates how we worship ligon duncan wrote a book called does god care how we worship and here's what he says he says if a renewal of christian worship is to be undertaken on what principle will it be founded If we are to live and worship together for the glory of God alone, then what should be the basis and and pattern of our worship? The only answer for evangelical Christians is sola scriptura, God's Word alone. God's Word itself must supply the principles and patterns and content of Christian worship. True Christian worship is by the book. He said, Well, don't different churches kind of do some, some different things? And, yeah, absolutely. I think I mentioned before, uh, you know, my dad, whenever uh, he was talking about his ideal worship, he said, You know, in, in worship, you should have uh, a piano and a guy leading worship. And the, the guy needs to sing well, but not too well. And that's it, right? Uh, that's, you know, we don't do that, right? Does that mean that that worship is bad and our worship is good or our worship's bad and that worship's good? No. Now, there's, there's different circumstances you can, can do. There are different forms that that worship can take. But, but the content of our worship, we, we look to God's Word and say, okay, what are the things, the elements of worship that we must do? We have to, to read God's Word, preach God's Word, sing God's Word, pray God's Word, see God's Word. And, and then the, the forms, how we do them, might be different. That's okay. But we want our worship to be biblical. That's why things like uh, those really big in the 90s like the, the, or 80s, the seeker-sensitive movement, uh, really, really were, were harmful to the church in many ways because they, they changed our approach to worship. And instead of the fundamental question being, what does God want us to do during this time? The fundamental question became, what do people want us to do during this time? Led to some very unbiblical practices, right? Our worship must be biblical if it's to be true. In God's presence. God, what do you want us to do? Number two, another word to use here is it has to be reverent. It has to be reverent. We'll spend a lot of time talking about this, but there's a, a sense of awe as we we contemplate the presence of the divine. Our, our worship has to be reverent. Reverent. <laughs> Number three, it needs to be joyful. Our worship must be joyful. As you see David worshiping as, as God's ark is brought into Jerusalem, there's this, this joy, there's dancing, and and uh, there, there there's this shouting, the sound of the horn, and the ark of the Lord comes in the city of David, and, and we see Michael responding poorly, and we'll come back to that, but David is, is excited, and the people are excited, and this joy flows from, from reverent worship. They're contemplating the glory of who God is, and, and joy is the outgrowth, and all true worship, contains joy. As we contemplate who God is, doesn't mean we're always going to be happy, doesn't mean we're always going to be exuberant, but there's always going to be joy as we contemplate who God is. Psalm 100 connects joy with the character of God. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing and then he talks about who God is. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his, 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 his people and the sheep of his pasture. You enter his, his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. And so there's this, this contemplation of who God is. and as We, we consider who God is, it, it works itself out in praise and, and worship. That's true biblical worship. Number four, true worship in the presence of God is transformational. It's transformational. In other words, true worship isn't just about something happening internally in me that's a feeling. I feel this thing, and so I've I've encountered true worship. Emotion accompanies it. There can be these emotions that accompany worship. There's joy that always accompanies worship, but it's not just about how I feel inside. True worship changes me in such a way that, that others are benefited that my life changes. And if, if my actions are not changing as a result of my worship, there's a very real possibility that my, my worship is not true. I mentioned before uh, A.W. Tozer. I want, I want to return to A.W. Tozer for just a moment. I want to be careful here. Uh, Tozer is a, a earthen vessel like any of us, right? And any of us have our, our weak spots. and And if you read a lot of Tozer's work, I think you are going to be benefited by it. He has this desire for communion with the Triune God, and at the same time, though, in his life, it it seems, according to his biographers, and and I don't know A. W. Tozer obviously, but his biographers would say there was a there were places in his life where there were some inconsistencies. He had this desire for communion with God, but often his his fellowship with his family was lacking. One reviewer said this, during the 1930s Tozer read voraciously and he developed a magnificent obsession to be in Christ's presence just to worship him and to be with him. But his wife and family felt neglected. He was a man who was emotionally and spiritually distant from his own wife. He found fulfillment in reading, preparing sermons, preaching, weaving travel into a demanding and exciting schedule, but his wife just had to learn to cope. Ada, his wife, dutifully washed, she ironed, she cooked, she cared for the little ones, she developed the art of shoving her pain deep down inside. And most of the time, she pretended that there was no hurt, but when interrupted, she blamed herself for not being godly enough to conquer her longing for intimacy from an emotionally aloof husband." These strange inconsistencies abound. Tozer saw his wife's gifts for hospitality. He encouraged her in them, so that's good, but he didn't want to have visitors in his home. He wouldn't allow his his own family or his wife's family to come to his home. Now, I want to be really careful, right? Because if you put a microscope microscope on any of our lives, you're going to find some issues, right? But I want us to to look at Tozer, a, a person who wrote so eloquently and beautifully about pursuing God, and, and I would encourage you to, to read and, and to apply many of those things, but something something didn't happen there with him, right? In, in some areas. And so if you say, man, I'm someone who just loves worship, and I'm, I'm so excited about worshiping God, and yet your worship of God is not leading to transformation. You need to take a step back and say, okay, what what's happening here? This is not worship that's rightly aware of the presence of God. If, if God is not changing my life, and if others in my life aren't seeing that, that, that change and that, that fruit in their, their lives, there's, there's a problem. Here, as David engages in worship, there's this communal aspect of it. It says he, he finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, and he, he blessed the people. He distributed among all the people, the whole Israel. there's this communal sense. Men and women, they, they receive these things, cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins, and all the people that departed each to his house. If people are not being blessed by our worship, if the community of God is not being blessed by the transformation that's taking place in your life, you need to take a step. So, okay, what, what's, what's going on here? When I was in high school, many of my friends who were the most emotional in, in their worship were, were also simultaneously some of the people who were least transformed in their, 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 their holiness, their, their day-to-day lives, we need to check that. Am I truly becoming more like Christ? Am I, am I more holy? Are others being benefited by my worship? If not, there's a problem. Last, last word here for, for worship in the presence of God is, is focused. It's focused. There's a sad interaction between David and, and Michael, his, his wife, and and she says, you know, you've, you've uncovered yourself, and, and what I think she means here, based upon what we see in First Chronicles, he, he, he had on the full garments of a priest, but what she means here is you're not wearing the royal robes, and you're just kind of uh, shaming yourself. And the way that you're shaming yourself is just like a vulgar uh, fellow who had shamelessly uncover himself. And, and, and David says, look, this is, this is between, ultimately it's, it's about the Lord. And my worship isn't about pleasing other people. Although, again, there's this communal aspect to worship. I want others to be benefited by it. But ultimately, my worship is focused on one person, one, one God, the, the triune God, one in three persons. God is gracious to us, isn't he? Our, our goal is to grow in worship, not say that we've achieved perfection in our worship. There's terror as we think about the, the being in the presence of a holy God as we come together on a Sunday morning. But somehow, by God's grace, we're here. God has allowed us to, to live in his, in his presence, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. And can it be, right? How can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood But because I have, through faith, what I want to do, I want to engage in worship that's biblical, that's reverent, that's joyful, that's transformational, that's focused on the one true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in your presence this morning, in the presence of a holy God, a God who is dedicated to his glory in ways that we cannot even comprehend. We understand small aspects of, of truth about you, true, true things about you, but the fullness of that truth we can never comprehend. And beginning today and through the rest of our lives into eternity, we are going to go deeper and deeper into understanding what it means that you are a holy God. And so, Father, this morning we are here in your presence, on the basis of your Son, Jesus, and we worship you. We pray that we would go deeper into our relationship with you, that we would understand your character more fully, that we would experience more joy as a result, that we would be reverent as we think about your name in our life, that as we, as we proclaim ourselves to be followers of you, that, that we would be careful with our lives, and others would, would see in our lives a dedication to you, a devotion to you they would see joy they would see transformation they would see a focus on you and you alone and we pray this in the name of your son Jesus and on his the basis of his finished work on the cross and life amen amen would you stand